Well, I think Jesus really is very good at allowing himself to be underestimated. Mm. I mean, it starts by, you know, when you're the son of God being born in a stable mm -hmm. to he could look quite imp unimpressive on the cross. That doesn't look like God being victorious, but it also applies to his teaching. Uh, and and th the point is the teaching, you can think, ah, oh, well, that's just a simple story. And there's so much more to it. So I think there is this thing about Jesus allowing himself to be underestimated because after all, he's speaking for those who are seeking. Seek and you will find. Let the, the one who has ears to hear, hear. And it's easy not to hear. It's easy just to glide over what you say. Many people consider Jesus to be a great teacher, but few actually realize just how incredible his teachings were. That's what my guest today, Dr. Peter J. Williams, wants us to see. Dr. Williams is the principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge, and he's the chair of the International Greek New Testament Project. He's also a member of the ESV Translation Oversight Committee, and the author of several books, including one titled, Can We Trust the Gospels? His latest book is called The Surprising Genius of Jesus, What the Gospels Reveal About the Greatest Teacher. And in this book, he examines the teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels from a scholarly perspective, and he shows how this examination actually reveals that these teachings truly do originate with Jesus and that they showcase an incredible awareness of and connection to the Old Testament in a way which would have triggered the memories of the first listeners and which contain layers of meaning for us as readers today to uncover. The other thing we can learn from examining Jesus' teachings is that Jesus is much more than just a good teacher. He is, in fact, Lord and God. So that's what we talk about in this conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. I'll be back at the end with some final words. Well, Peter, thank you for joining us on Theology for the People today. It's great to be with you. For our listeners' sake, could you please just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself and your work? So my name is Peter J. Williams, Dr. Peter J. Williams, if you like that, uh, from uh, Cambridge, England. So I'm principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge, which is uh, the, the UK's largest library of the Bible. And it's a residential research community of people uh, looking to study the Bible at the very deepest level and serve the church through that. Mm-hmm. Great. And what is some of the work that you've done in the past? I know that uh, we have your current book, The Surprising Genius of Jesus, that we're going to talk about, but I know that you've also written at least one other book about the Gospels. I'd like to just hear the story. Yeah, so, so I, I've written some unreadable books, but I do have a book, Can We Trust the Gospels, this one, which came out a few years ago, and I've been involved with uh, editing a Greek New Testament, which we produce. So for those who want to read the New Testament in Greek, we've got that as well. Yeah, excellent. Well, I read your book, The Surprising Genius of Jesus, What the Gospels Reveal About the Greatest Teacher. And I'll tell you, just by the title, I wasn't quite sure what to expect from the book, but I was excited to check it out. It was also, you know, I was intrigued by the fact that it was only 100 pages or so. So maybe you could summarize for us your take on the book, and then I'll give you yeah. some of my feedback. Well, what I'd say is uh, half of it is about Luke chapter 15 and... Uh, perhaps more than half of it is about Luke chapter 15 and the cleverness of Jesus' story of the prodigal son or the two sons. And often Christians can say, well, we know Jesus is clever because he's God. God's clever. God knows everything. Therefore, Jesus is clever. What I'm saying is, look, we can show Jesus is clever from the words he said. 
And, and that's trying to come at it from a different angle because that's available evangelistically. You can say, look, here is evidence of cleverness. And in particular, I think it's the most brilliant short story ever told. It's under three minutes it, and it packs so much in. So in the first chapter, I look at some of the specific techniques that Jesus has that show cleverness at emotional and intellectual levels. Second chapter, I go and show how it, it reflects a lot of Old Testament thinking. So you, you have to have read the Old Testament, particularly the book of Genesis very well in order to produce that story. So that's another sign of cleverness. And then I show how this happened in other stories of Jesus and how it has to come from Jesus, not from anyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was the thing that surprised me was that I think I, was, I wasn't terribly surprised by your first chapter. I found it like, yes, Jesus' story is very, you know, packed. There are things that he doesn't say that leave things implied. You know, in two minutes, how could he say so much? But what really got me in your book was the second chapter, Connecting with Genesis. Mm -hmm. So maybe could you summarize yeah. that for the listeners? Yeah, so my, my argument is really that in this three-minute story, it covers all of Genesis's greatest hits. So you've got to remember that Luke says this story was told to tax collectors and sinners who we don't expect to take much interest in the Bible and Pharisees and scribes who actually spend their time copying out the Bible. So you've got a mixed audience, some who don't know the Bible so well, some who are absolutely top-rate experts in the Bible. And Jesus tells a story that will work if you don't know the Bible at all. And will also work at deeper levels if you do know the Bible. So the opening words, a man had two sons. What does that trigger? Mm. Well, it can trigger all sorts of things. But as you read the story, it should trigger three stories. One is the story of Adam having two sons. Of course, he had more sons later. But the envy of Cain towards Abel, the older brother towards the younger brother. It should trigger Abraham, who had two sons. Abraham's the only other father who gave away his inheritance while he's still alive. And Abraham is the old man in the Bible who runs. And the very first word from his mouth is quick after he runs. And that's about getting a fatted calf ready, just like the man in the father in Jesus' story. But also a man had two sons, the most famous person to have two and only two sons is Isaac, who has Esau and Jacob. And they have a lot of resemblance with the older and younger brother in the story. And it's just when the younger brother, Jacob, is coming back from a far country where he's been looking after animals, that his older brother, Esau, runs, embraces and kisses him like the father in the story. So that's a really striking thing because Esau has been cheated, cheated out of his entire inheritance. This older brother in the story is worried that having little brother back is just going to diminish his own inheritance a little bit. And so if even Esau, who's a bad guy, can forgive his younger brother like that, that's quite a lesson. Yeah, and I noticed that you, you point this out, that in Luke 15, verse 20, it says that the father ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And that's almost exactly word for word what it says in Genesis 33, verse 4. That's right. So it's a match. So if you're a a scribe, you're, you're very familiar with the text of the Old Testament. And in particular, a, a phrase like that, run, embrace, a kiss, is only occurs once. And they, one of the things that scribes have to do is actually count the number of times particular phrases occur, make sure they don't confuse this phrase with another phrase. We've got other evidence, hard to explain, but which I show in the book, that 
that's actually part of the scribal curriculum at the time. That that particular verse is something that they know, and Jesus makes the high point of his story something that they know about, which is really quite striking. Yeah. No, I found it fascinating just like that Jesus would have been essentially almost like as he's speaking, triggering all of these things from the Old Testament, like things that would yeah. have been very meaningful to these people and and really make his message way more pointed than than maybe we we today read it just on a cursory level. Well, I think Jesus really is very good at allowing himself to be underestimated. Mm. I mean, it starts by, you know, when you're the son of God being born in a stable mm -hmm. to he can look quite imp unimpressive on the cross. That doesn't like God being victorious, but it also applies to his teaching. Uh, and and th the point is the teaching, you can think, oh, well, that's just a simple story. And there's so much more to it. So I think there is this thing about Jesus allowing himself to be underestimated because after all, he's speaking for those who are seeking seek and you will find let the, the one who has ears to hear hear and it's easy not to hear it's easy just to glide over what he's saying mm -hmm. so considering all of these and, and i mean we can go through some of these perhaps on a more deeper level but considering like for example if jesus is triggering or referencing the story of jacob and esau then how does that change or, or maybe drive home the emphasis for his hearers yeah, so I don't think it, it changes things, but there is this sense that, look, th at the beginning of the story, it says that Pharisees and tax collectors, sorry, tax collectors and sinners are drawing there to Jesus. And they're, they're, and it's the scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling and saying this shouldn't happen. They shouldn't, if you're a holy man, Jesus, you shouldn't be hanging out with them. And so it's a very pointed story because it, it shows how god accepts sinners that's actually part of what you find out in the old testament and jacob's a complete, complete trickster he's tricked his older brother out of his entire inheritance and the older brother forgives him it references the story of jacob when the father says quick get a ring and a robe that's what pharaoh uh, says when joseph comes uh, out of prison and of course joseph was uh, sold by his brothers and then forgave them so i think when you are um, referencing these old stories, there's a lot of uh, moral lesson to them. So Abraham ran to welcome complete stranger guests and threw a huge party with a 400 portion of meat or so animal killed for three people. That's quite striking. Yeah. And, and so again, like, how would this affect the way that the the Pharisees and the scribes would have heard this story, knowing the backstories well, that Jesus yeah. was referencing. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult to say what they would have understood. So they ought to have spotted these references. Whether they did or not is another question, because I think a lot depends on how clever you think the person talking is. So often you can miss something because you have already taken a low view of the person speaking and so you don't expect there to be much there whereas if you're attentive and you hear you might see more so i think that's one dynamic but the the point is that they are presented with evidence irrefutable evidence of jesus's genius they might see that 
they might be too proud to accept it, or they might bow the knee and say, clearly this is greater than any teacher we've ever seen in Israel. We need to heed this. And that should be their response. Whether it was their response, part of that is in, as with the open ending of the story, which doesn't tell you how the older brother responds. It's an invitation to them to bow their knee and intellectually submit to him, whether they do or not, mm -hmm. we don't know. I thought another really interesting part of your book was, I guess it'd be the third chapter. You talk about more stories inspired by the Old Testament. And yeah. I think you go through, is it 14 total where you, yeah, you yeah. point out? Yeah. One of them, uh, an extra one I do in more detail, that's the temporarily rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16. Yeah. And what is your point in bringing up those 14 examples? Well, just to say, look, if I, I'm right that this is in Jesus's teaching, we wouldn't just expect it to be in one story. We would expect it to be in others. And it's not, you don't have to look very hard to find evidence of Old Testament allusion in Jesus's stories. So there are other ones as well. I, I could have spent more time on those, but I just picked out what I thought were the more obvious ones, harder to debate to show that, yes, Jesus uses the Old Testament a lot in his stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in your fourth chapter, then you talk about, was Jesus the genius? And I think that what you're addressing there is the question of, how do we know that these weren't just written by Luke? Maybe Luke is just particularly smart, you know? Yeah, and, and, and Luke really was smart. I mean, the, the story he writes in the book of Acts is very clever. He knows a lot about the Mediterranean and so on. But you don't really explain why there would be lots of references to the Bible, the Old Testament, if it's in Luke writing for a Gentile audience, you explain that better if it's Jesus speaking to a group of Bible experts. There are also re references to rabbinic ideas in this story, which again would make more sense if he's speaking to the very people that Luke says he is. And then there are hallmarks of the way Jesus speaks. So for instance, telling stories back to back lots of parables back to back that's in luke but it's also in matthew and mark they present jesus as telling telling parables back to back who else does this it seems this is something particularly jesus does or the way you get male and female pairs together as you get in luke chapter 15 with the uh shepherd losing a sheep sheep one out of not one out of a hundred the woman losing one out of ten coins that's something you can find not just in luke but also in elsewhere in Jesus' teaching, or the way Jesus begins a story with a question, or he ends with particular ways, so saying something was necessary, or saying thus something happens. There are particular phrases you can see, particular ways of thinking that reflect the way Jesus thinks elsewhere, not just in Luke's gospel. So I think putting these things together, I'm wanting to say, no, the story has to come from Luke, and the whole, sorry, from Jesus, and the whole lot has to come from Jesus because you don't get a brilliant story by committee, half done by this person, half done by that. And the whole lot has to be handed down with integrity. You can't have this gradually growing. That won't make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you also pointed out that it shows somebody who was like intimately familiar with the geography of Israel and in that that's, area. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, even I, I found this interesting as well, that you, you talk about how the story of the Good Samaritan is, you know, people think of it as, as having, you know, a great moral story about love across tribal boundaries. 
But it actually talk, it's referring to and echoing an obscure Old Testament passage about people from Samaria. I wasn't yeah, aware of that's that. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's not something original to me. Lots of people have pointed that out before. But yes, there is a, a passage from Chronicles, which is very much like what's going on in that particular story. Also, it's got very specific geographical knowledge. That's, that's impressive. It's got Jesus' style all over it. E- even where Jesus says, do this and live, this do and live to the person who's asking him a question. Again, that seems to be a reference back to Genesis. So yeah, there's lots going on there. Again, it's a really, my little book is a really short book, but hopefully you'll get new depth in some of Jesus' stories as you do that. Yeah. And I mean, just back to Luke, I think the point being made was that Luke would not have had that same geographical intimate knowledge that Jesus had as somebody who lived That's in, right, the, yeah. in the land. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, what is it that you hope that people will really take away from this book? I mean, well, a couple of things, really. I'm hoping for Christians to go away with a new sense of awe about Jesus. That's one thing. And also go away with a new renewed expectation about what they'll find in scripture. Mm-hmm. So I think very often what happens with our Bible engagement and knowledge is we plateau. We think, oh, I know enough. I know enough of the Bible not to be embarrassed in church. I've sort of got the rough idea of the stories and you don't go any further. And particularly with a story like the prodigal son, you say, well, I know the father runs in braces and kisses him. That's a bit like the Titanic sinks in the story. So you actually don't have any, uh, you know, David killed Goliath. So you don't need to pay any attention to this sort of Bible story because you know it. And yet I'm saying, no, re-engage every word. I'm seeing new things in this story on a regular basis. And I hope people fall in love with scripture more. I would also say that it is a book that can be used with serious non-Christians who are prepared to wade through quite a bit of Bible. But I have structured the argument that they should be able to follow it and track along and say, yes, that makes sense. Look, we are advocating Jesus as savior. We're advocating him as teacher. There's no greater teacher that you could have. And so giving this to people and saying, look, have you ever found anyone as smart as this? Mm-hmm. I think it's something you can do. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's definitely an easy on-ramp for many people because I think that in many you know, people I've talked to, they respect Jesus as a great teacher, though they may not respect him as Lord. And, and I, I know that that is kind of the end that you take, the final turn you take in the book is understanding that Jesus is more than just a talented teacher. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, could I ask you a little bit about uh, your previous book on the Gospels? I'm intrigued uh, sure. to know a little bit more about this idea of can we trust the Gospels? And it seems that maybe there's a little bit of overlap even in the two books. Yeah, and I'd say they're both in a similar style. So they're both brief books. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think people write too long. So this one is 38,000 words and this one is 35,000 words. So they're very similar and in the sort of way I'm trying to engage surprising genius of Jesus has got more references to the Bible in mm-hmm. can we trust the gospels a, a bit more by way of charts, mm-hmm. but they, they're both trying to start people from just fairly limited knowledge of the Bible and say, well, what, what can we go from that? And both of them to lead people to see Jesus as utterly remarkable. So that's what I, I, I try and end up with in both of them. Could you summarize some of your points and arguments from the Can We Trust the Gospels book? 
Well, I mean, one of the things I do show is that the gospel writers really know about the time and place they're writing about. So they they know the, the land uh, of Jesus, uh, but they know the customs of the land of Jesus, the names that people are called in the land of Jesus, all those sorts of things that you can show. And then when you start asking the question, well, can it be that they have got this geographical knowledge and so on, cultural knowledge, but are simply writing a fictional story on top of it? Is that possible? And that doesn't really explain what we've got. It doesn't explain the relationship between the Gospels. It doesn't explain the patterns of speech. And what I'd say, I, I actually come up with one of these better arguments in, in this uh, book with the surprising genius of Jesus, where I show that when Jesus is using the Old Testament in the story in Matthew chapter 25, with the wise and the foolish virgins, and there's a cry goes up at midnight, this is a reference to the Old Testament. A cry goes up at midnight at the Passover time. But you've got to remember, Jesus, according to Matthew's gospel, is telling this story in the lead up to Passover time. So in other words, you've got a feature of the story which really makes sense if it was told by the very person it says it was told by at the time it says it was told by, that will sort of hang together. So I'd say that's a general way of reasoning which you can find in the Gospels. That It's not that you prove that the Gospels are true. It's simply that you say looking at them as true will explain the patterns of words that we have here better than any other, uh, any other explanation. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the way I would commend um, these things to people. Mm -hmm. And when do you personally think like the, the gospels were written or at least in this sense, like completed? Well, they were written a long time ago. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> um, so they don't come with years on, they come with names on. Mm -hmm. So lots of people want to know when are the dates of the gospels. The Gospels are by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They therefore have to be in the lifespan of Matthew and John, who are disciples of Jesus, Mark, who is an interpreter of Peter, and Luke, who's a companion of Paul. So those give you some limits on when they can be written, but they absolutely do not come with years on them. They come with names on them. Yes, yes. And I, and I wasn't really thinking so much as terms of like, when was... A particular gospel written as opposed to kind of like how have you helped to refute some of the ideas that the gospels were later inventions or that they were kind of legendized? yeah so so what, one thing i do say in surprisingly genius of jesus is that the gospels are long enough after jesus that they can be completely false and they're close enough to jesus that they can be completely true and it seems to me both of those are valid simply time won't tell you Someone can lie about what happened earlier today, or they can tell them the truth about what happened 80 years ago. I've got a 103-year-old granny. She can tell me all sorts of stuff from a very long time ago. So that's where I, I think that simply the number of decades doesn't make much difference there. I I'm generally go with, well, dates in the lifetime of the first generation of disciples. And that that's, is, is, I think, on the whole, not many decades after Jesus' ministry. But uh, I, I think, th yeah, the actual ye years doesn't matter for me. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Just getting back to your, your book, The Surprising Genius of Jesus, one of the thoughts that I had and wrote a note to myself is, is this question. So in chapter three, you're talking about 
more stories inspired by the Old Testament and references or echoes is what you call them to Old Testament stories, because oftentimes they're not direct references. How do you know when you're not making a stretch? Like, how do you avoid that? So I think one of the things that goes on is quantitative. So let's say you've only just met a person for the very first time and you're not sure what their mood is or how to read their face. Well, you go away unsure. But if you've met that person many, many times, you begin to get more confident about your reading of what they're saying or whether someone's being aggressive or kind or whatever it is. So that's where I think you have that same sort of pattern. So if it were just, is there an Old Testament allusion here in one place on its own, it's hard to judge. But when you start finding a pattern where the same teacher seems to be alluding to the same book, and I'm saying particularly the book of Genesis in the, in the case of uh, Jesus' story in Luke 15, and you start finding more and more of these, that gives you a certain assurance that this is the case. Um, so sometimes, like with black beauty, you've got two Bs in a row. Can you be certain that the alliteration is definite maybe you can't but when you find that all of the all four heads of hogwarts houses in harry potter each have the same two letters salazar Slytherin, helga hufflepuff you know you start thinking no this has to be deliberate so that's where a lot of these things are about quantity and is is it a particular pattern of behavior it's not about statistical significance because in the humanities, that's often not the, the way it's it's going to be helpful to uh, judge things. But you rather say this looks this is very well explained as an author, a feature of authorial intent, and otherwise wouldn't be explained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Thank you. So in my church here, where I'm pastoring, I recently started teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and so our style of teaching. It's expository, you know, working through an entire uh, book of the Bible at a time. So I've been reading, well, I've been reading this book by Patrick Schreiner, Matthew, Disciple, and Scribe. And I was, right. I was just curious to get your take on, on this, having studied the origins of the Gospels and things like that. I haven't read that book, I've got to say. Okay, well, I, I'll just tell you the one particular thing I have a question about, which is that he believes that Matthew was essentially a scribe, right? Then that maybe contributed to his work as a tax collector, but that as a scribe, he would have been taking notes. And I I think that I've heard that from other, (laughs) you know, teachers and things throughout the year that Matthew was essentially probably taking notes as Jesus went and that there are, you know, different hypotheses about how the, the gospels got to us, whether there were different things that were put together. Maybe there was a, a, third source, like a Q source. I, I just want to get your thoughts on any of those things. So it's certainly possible that Matthew took notes. I mean, in order to be a tax collector, he has to write tax receipts. Do not pay the tax man without getting a receipt. And so we find not from Israel so much because the climate isn't really right for it, but from Southern Egypt, you find that you regularly get tax receipts found because that's that's what happens when you, you, you pay your tax, you, you get a piece of something can even be on pottery saying you have paid this. So of course he has to be literate at that level. That doesn't mean highly literate, able to create books and so on. So that's, that seems reasonable. 
it's very difficult to say how much formal education people had. Obviously, Jesus educated people while they were his disciples. I mean, that's the whole point. They were students. That's what a disciple is. And their job as disciples is to learn his words by hook or by crook. So they could use a wax tablet. So a wax on top of maybe slate or wood, a wood often, and they, they would, they could write stuff in and write it out. Also, Jesus is an itinerant preacher. So that means he reuses things. So I don't think you just come up with the Beatitudes and only say it once. You don't come up with a brilliant story and only use it once. So I think that's another element to it in terms of memory. It's not that people have to memorize everything in one go. All four Gospels present Jesus as a repeating teacher. So all four of them specifically have him say the same thing more than once within a Gospel. So that seems to be part of the, of the presentation. He, he's a, he repeats. That helps memory aid. And of course, in addition to that, people can have writing. So these things are all possible. They're a bit speculative, but yes, we don't, we don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Where can people keep up with you and your work beyond your books? Right. So uh, tinderhouse.com is where I hang out and we have a magazine that comes out and electronic articles that come out from other Bible geeks who hang out very near me as well as myself so I, I would say that would that's where it sent me awesome well peter williams again the book is called the surprising genius of jesus what the gospels reveal about the greatest teacher thanks for your time today and for sharing with us thank you thanks for listening to this episode of theology for the people New episodes are released every Wednesday, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with David Gibson about Psalm 23. This well-known psalm has become popular for use at funerals or in times of hardship, but David Gibson wants to show us that this psalm is actually a psalm for life, not for death, and he helps us see this familiar passage in some new ways. Theology for the People is a listener-supported program. If you have enjoyed or been encouraged by this content, please consider sharing it with others and leave a review on either the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, there's a link in the show notes where you can make a donation to support the show. Until next time, thanks for listening and God bless you.